Simon and Schuster Audio presents Contagious: Why Things Catch On by Jonah Berger. Read by Keith Knobs. Introduction: Why Things Catch On. By the time Howard Wien moved to Philadelphia in March 2004, he already had lots of experience in the hospitality industry. He had earned an MBA in hotel management, helped Starwood Hotels launch its W brand, and managed billions of dollars in revenue as Starwood's corporate director of food and beverage. But he was done with big. He yearned for a smaller, more restaurant-focused environment. So he moved to Philly to help design and launch a new luxury boutique steakhouse called Barclay Prime. The concept was simple. Barclay Prime was going to deliver the best steakhouse experience imaginable. The restaurant is located in the toniest part of downtown Philadelphia. Its dimly lit entry paved with marble. Instead of traditional dining chairs, patrons rest on plush sofas clustered around small marble tables. They feast from an extensive raw bar, including East and West Coast oysters and Russian caviar, and the menu offers delicacies like truffle-whipped potatoes and lime-caught halibut, FedExed overnight directly from Alaska. But we knew that good food and great atmosphere wouldn't be enough. After all, the thing restaurants are best at is going out of business. More than 25% fail within 12 months of opening their doors. 60% are gone within the first three years. Restaurants fail for any number of reasons. Expenses are high. Everything from the food on the plates to the labor that goes into preparing and serving it, and the landscape is crowded with competitors. For every new American bistro that pops up in a major city, there are two more right around the corner. Like most small businesses, restaurants also have a huge awareness problem. Just getting the word out that a new restaurant has opened its doors, much less that it's worth eating at, is an uphill battle. And unlike the large hotel chains Wien had previously worked for, most restaurants don't have the resources to spend on lots of advertising or marketing. They depend on people talking about them to be successful. Wien knew he needed to generate buzz. Philadelphia already boasted dozens of expensive steakhouses, and Barclay Prime needed to stand out. Wien needed something to cut through the clutter and give people a sense of the uniqueness of the brand. But what? How could he get people talking? How about a hundred-dollar cheesesteak? The standard Philly cheesesteak is available for four or five bucks at hundreds of sandwich shops. Burger joints and pizzerias throughout Philadelphia. It's not a difficult recipe. Chop some steak on a griddle, throw it on a hoagie hero roll, and melt some provolone cheese or cheese whiz on top. It's delicious regional fast food, but definitely not haute cuisine. Wien thought he could get some buzz by raising the humble cheesesteak to new culinary heights, and attaching a newsworthy price tag. So he started with a fresh, house-made brioche roll, brushed with homemade mustard. He added thinly sliced Kobe beef, marbleized to perfection. Then he included caramelized onions, shaved heirloom tomatoes, 
and triple cream Tellaggio cheese. All this was topped off with shaved, hand-harvested black truffles and butter-poached Maine lobster tail. And just to make it even more outrageous, he served it with a chilled split of Verve Clicquot champagne. The response was incredible. People didn't just try the sandwich, they rushed to tell others. One person suggested that groups get it as a starter, that way you all get the absurd storytelling rights. Another noted that the sandwich was honestly indescribable. One does not throw all these fine ingredients together and get anything subpar. It was like eating gold. And given the sandwich's price, it was almost as expensive as eating gold, albeit far more delicious. Wien didn't create just another cheesesteak. He created a conversation piece. It worked. The story of the $100 cheesesteak was contagious. Talk to anyone who's been to Barclay Prime. Even if people didn't order the cheesesteak, most will likely mention it. Even people who have never been to the restaurant love to talk about it. It was so newsworthy that USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and other media outlets published pieces on the sandwich. The Discovery Channel filmed a segment for its best food ever show. David Beckham had one when he was in town. David Letterman invited Barclay's executive chef to New York to cook him one on The Late Show. All that buzz for what is still, at its heart, just a sandwich. The buzz helped. Barclay Prime opened nearly a decade ago. Against the odds, the restaurant has not only survived, but flourished. It has won various food awards and is listed among the best steakhouses in Philadelphia year after year. But more important, it built a following. Barclay Prime caught on. Why do products, ideas, and behaviors catch on? There are lots of examples of things that have caught on. Yellow Live Strong wristbands, non-fat Greek yogurt, Six Sigma management strategy, smoking bans, low-fat diets, then Atkins, South Beach, and the low-carb craze. The same dynamic happens on a smaller scale at the local level. A certain gym will be the trendy place to go. A new church or synagogue will be in vogue. Everyone will get behind a new school referendum. These are all examples of social epidemics, instances where products, ideas, and behaviors diffuse through a population. They start with a small set of individuals or organizations and spread, often from person to person, almost like a virus. Or in the case of the $100 cheesesteak, an over-the-top, wallet-busting virus. But while it's easy to find examples of social contagion, it's much harder to actually get something to catch on. Even with all the money poured into marketing and advertising, few products become popular. Most restaurants bomb, most businesses go under, and most social movements fail to gain traction. Why do some products, ideas, and behaviors succeed when others fail? One reason some products and ideas become popular is that they are just plain better. We tend to prefer websites that are easier to use, drugs that are more effective, and scientific theories that are true rather than false. 
So when something comes along that offers better functionality or does a better job, people tend to switch to it. Remember how bulky televisions or computer monitors used to be? They were so heavy and cumbersome that you had to ask a couple of friends or risk a strained back to carry one up a flight of stairs. One reason flat screens took off was that they were better. Not only did they offer larger screens, but they weighed less. No wonder they became popular. Another reason products catch on is attractive pricing. Not surprisingly, most people prefer paying less rather than more. So if two very similar products are competing, the cheaper one often wins out. Or if a company cuts its prices in half, that tends to help sales. Advertising also plays a role. Consumers need to know about something before they can buy it. So people tend to think that the more they spend on advertising, the more likely something will become popular. Want to get people to eat more vegetables? Spending more on ads should increase the number of people who hear your message and buy broccoli. But although quality, price, and advertising contribute to products and ideas being successful, they don't explain the whole story. Take the first names Olivia and Rosalie. Both are great names for girls. Olivia means olive tree in Latin and is associated with fruitfulness, beauty, and peace. Rosalie has Latin and French origins and is derived from the word for roses. Both are about the same length and in vowels and have handy, cute nicknames. Indeed, thousands of babies are named Olivia or Rosalie each year. But think for a moment about how many people you know with each name. How many people you've met named Olivia and how many people you've met named Rosalie? I'll bet you know at least one Olivia, but you probably don't know a Rosalie.
Simon & Schuster Audio presents Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior by Jonah Berger Read by Keith Nobbs Introduction Think about a choice you made recently, any choice, which breakfast cereal to buy, movie to see, or place to have lunch, or even a more important decision, which person to date, political candidate to support, or career to pursue. Why did you make that choice? Why did you pick the particular option you ended up choosing? Seems like an easy question. While various idiosyncratic reasons may come to mind, in general, they all point in the same direction. You. Your personal tastes and preferences. Your likes and dislikes. Which potential mate you found funny or attractive. Whether the candidate's policy stance matches your own. The notion that our choices are driven by our own personal thoughts and opinions seems so obvious that it is not even worth mentioning. Except that it's wrong. Without our realizing it, Others have a huge influence on almost every aspect of life. People vote because others are voting, eat more when others are eating, and buy a new car because their neighbors have recently done the same. Social influence affects the products people buy, health plans they choose, grades they get in school, and careers they follow. It shapes whether people save for retirement, invest in the stock market, donate money, join a fraternity, save energy, or adopt new innovations. Social influence even affects whether people engage in criminal activity or are satisfied with their job. 99.9% of all decisions are shaped by others. It's hard to find a decision or behavior that isn't affected by other people. In fact, looking across all domains of our lives, there is only one place we don't seem to see social influence ourselves. I started studying the science of social influence, the way others affect our behavior, by biking around Palo Alto, California, looking for BMWs. Palo Alto is one of the world's most expensive places to live. Stock options and IPOs have fattened the pockets of many residents and have also pushed up everything from housing prices to private school tuition. Ferrari and Maserati have dealerships nearby, Lunch at one of the high-end restaurants can run close to $200 per person. Looking for BMWs was like hunting for Easter eggs. There was no surefire way to know where to find them, so I relied on a little intuition and a lot of luck. I slowly biked up and down different streets, scanning cars for the telltale shape and logo. Then, at each corner, I would stop and try to guess which direction had the best chance of success. Dentist's office to the left. Dentists tend to drive nice cars, so why not do a quick loop of the parking lot? High-end grocery store to the right. Worth a shot. Every time I found a BMW, I reached into my messenger bag, pulled out a piece of paper, and gingerly tucked it under one of the windshield wipers. These weren't coupons for body shops or advertisements for auto detailing. We weren't selling anything at all. Instead... Princeton professor Emily Pronin and I were interested in how different factors influenced car buying, 
which factors people thought influenced their own car purchase decision, and how much those same factors played a role in someone else's BMW purchase. In addition to standard factors like price, gas mileage, and reliability, the survey also asked about more social influences. Did their friends' opinions affect their decision? What about whether the car was associated with cool or high-status people? Each respondent answered the set of questions twice, once for themselves and once for another person they knew who also drove a BMW. How much was that other person's BMW purchase influenced by things like price and gas mileage? Whether cool or high-status people drove something similar? After biking around in circles most of the day, I had left surveys on more than 100 BMWs, each with a self-addressed envelope for people to mail their responses back. And then, I waited. The first day, the mailman couldn't come fast enough. But when I opened the mailbox, all that was inside was disappointment. Just a bunch of random coupons and a furniture company catalog. No one had returned the survey. The next day, my optimism was tempered with caution. I sauntered by the mailbox and peeked inside. Still, nothing. Now, I was starting to get worried. Had people ignored the survey? Maybe the envelopes had blown away? By the third day, a feeling of dread accompanied the mail. If there were still no responses, I'd have to go out and find new BMWs, or we'd have to come up with a different approach. But finally, way in the back of the mailbox, was the answer I'd been waiting for. One of the small white envelopes that I had placed on a car windshield a couple of days before. The next day, there were a few more responses, and a bunch more the day after that. We were in business. We took the responses and compared people's perceptions of themselves with their perceptions of others. What influenced their BMW purchase versus what influenced someone else's BMW purchase? Many things were relatively similar. Not surprisingly, people thought factors like price and gas mileage mattered a lot, and they were equally important for both themselves and others. Price had a big impact on their own BMW purchase, and they thought it had a similar large impact on whether another person had bought a BMW as well. But when it came to assessing the impact of social influence, things changed. It wasn't that people didn't think social influence mattered, they did. They were keenly aware that car buying decisions were affected by what friends thought and whether cool or high-status people drove the car. In fact, they readily acknowledged that social influence had a big impact on what cars people buy. Except when those people were themselves. When they considered someone else's BMW purchase, the effect of social influence was obvious. They could easily recognize that someone's tastes shifted based on what their friends thought or the pressure to fit in. But when it came to turn that same microscope on their own BMW purchase, poof, social influence vanished. They saw no evidence of it. When they held up a mirror to their own actions, they didn't think social influence had any effect. And it wasn't just cars. Other situations show the same asymmetry. Whether buying clothes, voting on political issues, or driving courteously, people recognized that social influence had an impact, except when it came to them. 
People could see social influence affecting others' behavior, but not their own. One possible explanation is social desirability. Maybe people don't think they're influenced by others because being influenced is a bad thing. Society tells us to be ourselves and live above the influence, to avoid being a lemming and going with the herd. If being influenced is bad, maybe people don't think they're swayed because they don't want to see themselves in a negative light. But it isn't that simple. Even when being influenced was a good thing, people still didn't think it affected them. It's polite to consider local customs, for example, when visiting a place you don't know well. And when picking out clothes for a formal event, going rogue isn't usually a positive thing. Yet, even in situations like these, when it was good to be influenced, people still didn't think they were affected. Because there is an even more subtle reason we don't think social influence affects us. We can't see it. Only you. You just started your junior year of high school. And to celebrate, your parents decide that it's time for you to get a job. You've lived off them long enough, they say, and it's time to make your own spending money. Just a part-time position that will get you out of the house for a few hours a couple times a week. It'll build character and teach you the ways of the world. Having only babysat and mowed a few lawns, your resume is not exactly sparkling, but you're able to snag a part-time position bagging groceries at the local supermarket. Not the most exciting job, but it sure beats cleaning out the meat case. You've just begun to master the ins and outs of paper and plastic when you run into one of your new co-workers in the break room. You've seen her bagging over in lane 7 for a couple of weeks now, and you can't help but notice how pretty she is. She introduces herself, and the two of you start talking about your boss, your respective high schools, and the tricks she learned to keep tomatoes from bruising. Next week, you run into her a couple more times. And the week after that, a couple more. You talk for even longer.
see the PDF that accompanies this program for additional materials. Simon & Schuster Audio presents The Catalyst How to Change Anyone's Mind by Jonah Berger Read by Keith Knobs and Fred Irby To Jordan, Jasper, Zoe, and Little Pico for changing my life in all the best ways. Introduction. As a case agent for the FBI, Greg Vecchi specialized in international drug trafficking, money laundering, and extortion. Many of his targets were hardened, violent career criminals, the kinds of guys who sold helicopters to the Median drug cartel, or tried to buy old Russian submarines to sneak cocaine into the United States from Colombia. To corner one suspect from the Russian mob, Greg led a three-year wiretapping effort, painstakingly collecting information and building a case. When the warrants were ready, Greg called in a SWAT team, dozens of stocky guys in full-body armor, who would then storm in, neutralize the bad guys, and collect the evidence. As he briefed the team, he outlined the various concerns. Greg emphasized that the suspect might be armed and was certainly dangerous. The SWAT team formed an arrest plan that left no room for error. They needed to get this just right, or things could turn violent in a hurry. At the end of the briefing, everyone left the room except for one guy. Greg had spotted him earlier. In a room full of commandos, this guy looked out of place. Fat, short, and bald, he was nowhere close to the chiseled picture of SWAT material. Tell me about your guy, the man asked. I want to know more. Not sure what you mean, said Greg. I just did. I said I've got this whole file of... No, 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 went the guy. I don't mean his criminal history. I don't mean his violent past and all the other stuff. You've been on the wiretap, right? Yeah, Greg replied. What is he like? The man asked. What do you mean, what is he like? What does he do? What are his hobbies? Tell me about his family. Does he have any pets? Does the suspect have any pets? Greg thought to himself, we're about to send a paramilitary unit after a guy and you want to know whether he has any pets? What a bunch of crap. No wonder this guy got left behind by the rest of the SWAT team. Greg dutifully provided the information and started to collect the briefing documents he'd laid out. One last question, the guy said. The suspect is there now, right? Yeah, said Greg. Well, give me his phone number, the guy said before walking out the door. When it came time for the arrest, the SWAT team was ready, stacked in a line outside the building, one behind the other, waiting to kick in the door. Dressed in black from head to toe, they had their shields out and guns drawn. Get down! Get down! Get down! They'd yell before rushing in and grabbing the suspect. But as the seconds ticked by, the SWAT team still hadn't gone in. A few minutes passed, then a few more. Greg started to worry. He knew the suspect better than anyone. He'd listened to him talk with his friends and associates. The guy was bad news. He would kill people. He'd been in a Russian prison, and he wasn't scared of a fight. And all of a sudden, the door opened up. 
And out into the open came the suspect, with his hands up. Greg was dumbfounded. He'd been in law enforcement for a long time, years as a special agent in the U.S. Army and the Department of Agriculture. He'd worked undercover across the United States and done anti-corruption work on the Mexican border. He had a good chunk of experience. But a guy coming out of his own accord and getting arrested without incident? He'd never seen anything like it. Then he realized that short, bald guy he'd been talking to, that guy was a hostage negotiator. And the hostage negotiator convinced the suspect to do something no one thought possible. Turn himself over to the authorities in broad daylight without a fight. Shit, Greg thought. I want to be that guy. Since then, Greg has spent more than 20 years as a hostage negotiator. He's dealt with international kidnappings, interviewed Saddam Hussein after his capture, and headed the FBI's legendary behavioral science unit. From talking down bank robbers to interrogating serial killers, he's changed people's minds under seemingly impossible conditions. Crisis negotiation emerged after the 1972 Munich Olympic Games, where terrorists took hostage and then killed 11 Israeli Olympians. Previously, the focus had often been on force, telling people, come out with your hands up or we'll shoot. But after Munich and a number of other very public failures, it became clear that bullying people into submission wasn't working. So practitioners turned to the psychology literature, using behavioral science to build new training techniques that could safely de-escalate a crisis. For the last few decades, negotiators like Greg have relied on a different model, one that works. Whether trying to convince an international terrorist to let hostages go or to change someone's mind about committing suicide, even when talking to someone who just killed his family, who's locked himself up in a bank with hostages, who knows he's talking to a police officer, who knows the consequences and knows his life is going to change. Nine out of ten times, he comes out by himself. And he comes out just because someone asks. The Power of Inertia Everyone has something they want to change. Salespeople want to change their customers' minds, and marketers want to change purchase decisions. Employees want to change their boss's perspective, and leaders want to change organizations. Parents want to change their children's behavior. Startups want to change industries. Nonprofits want to change the world. But change is hard. We persuade and cajole and pressure and push, but even after all that work, often nothing moves. Things change at a glacial pace if they change at all. In the tale of the tortoise and the hare, change is a three-toed sloth on his lunch break. Isaac Newton famously noted that an object in motion tends to stay in motion, while an object at rest tends to stay at rest. Sir Isaac focused on physical objects, planets, pendulums, and the like, but the same concepts can be applied to the social world. Just like moons and comets, people and organizations are guided by conservation of momentum, inertia. They tend to do what they've always done. Rather than thinking about which candidate represents their values, voters tend to pick whoever represents the party they voted for in the past. 
Rather than starting fresh and thinking about which projects deserve attention, companies take last year's budget and use that as a starting point. Rather than rebalancing financial portfolios, investors tend to look at how they've been investing and stay the course. Inertia explains why families go back to the same vacation spot every year and why organizations are wary of starting new initiatives but loathe to kill off old ones. When trying to change minds and overcome such inertia, the tendency is to push. Client not buying the pitch? Send them a deck of facts and reasons. Boss not listening to the idea? Give them more examples or a deeper explanation. Whether trying to change company culture or get the kids to eat their vegetables, the assumption is that pushing harder will do the trick. That if we just provide more information, more facts, more reasons, more arguments, or just add a little more force, people will change. Implicitly, this approach assumes that people are like marbles. Push them in one direction, and they will go that way. Unfortunately, that approach often backfires. Unlike marbles, people don't just roll with it when you try to push them. They push back. Rather than saying yes, the client stops returning our calls. Rather than going along, the boss says they'll think about it, which is a nice way of saying thanks, but no way. Rather than coming out with their hands up, a suspect holds up and starts shooting. So if pushing people doesn't work, what does? A better way to change minds. To answer this question, it helps to look to a completely different domain, chemistry. Left to itself, Chemical change can take eons. Algae and plankton turning into oil, or carbon being gradually squeezed into diamonds. For reactions to occur, molecules must break the bonds between their atoms and form new ones. It's a slow and painstaking process that happens over thousands, if not millions, of years. To facilitate change, chemists often use a special set of substances. These unsung heroes clean the exhaust in your car, and the grime on your contact lenses. They turn air into fertilizer and petroleum into bike helmets. They speed change, enabling molecules that might take years to interact to do so in seconds. Most intriguing, though, is the way these substances generate change. Chemical reactions usually require a certain amount of energy 